Chapter 7 of Marvels of Modern Science. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Louise J. Bell. Marvels of Modern Science by Paul Severing. Chapter 7 Wonderful Creations in Plant Life Mating Plants Experiments of Burbank What He Has Accomplished In California lives a wonderful man. He has succeeded in doing more than making two blades of grass grow where grew but one. Yearly, daily in fact, this wizard of plant life is playing tricks on old Mother Nature, transforming her vegetable children into different shapes, and making them no longer recognizable in their original forms. Like the fairies in Irish mythology, this man steals away the plant babies, but instead of leaving sickly elves in their places, he brings into the world exceedingly healthy or lusty youngsters, which grow up into a full maturity and develop traits of character superior to the ones they supplant. For instance, he took away the ugly, thorny, insipid cactus and replaced it by a beautiful, smooth, juicy one which is now making the western deserts blossom as the rose. The name of this man is Luther Burbank, whose fame as a creator of new plants has become worldwide. The basic principle of Burbank's plant magic comes under two heads, namely breeding and selection. He mates two different species in such a way that they will propagate a type partaking of the natures of both, but superior to either in their qualities. In order to effect the best results from mating, he is choice in his selection of species. The best is taken, and the worst rejected. It is a universal law that the bad can never produce the good. Consequently, when good is desired, as is universally the case, bad must be eliminated. In his method, Burbank gives the good a chance to assert itself, and at the same time takes away all opportunity from the bad so that the latter cannot thrive, but must decay and pass out of being. He takes two plants. They may be of the same species, but, as a general rule, he prefers to experiment with those of different species. He perceives that neither one in its present surroundings is putting forth what is naturally expected from it, that each is either retrograding in the scale of life, 
or standing still for lack of encouragement to go forward. He knows that back of these plants is a long history of evolutions, from primitive beginnings to their present stage, just as in the case of man himself. Tis a far cry from the cliff-dweller wielding his stone axe and roaming nude through the fields and forests after his prey, the wild beast, to the lordly creature of today, the product of long ages of civilization and culture. Yet, as high as the state is to which man has been brought, in many cases he is hemmed in and surrounded by circumstances which preclude him from putting forth the best that is in him and showing his full possibilities to the world. The philosopher is often hidden in the plowman, and many a poor laborer, toiling in corduroys and fustian at the docks, in the mills, or sweeping the streets, may have as good a brain as Edison, but has not the opportunity to develop it and show its capabilities. The same analogy is applicable to plant life. Under adverse conditions, a plant or vegetable cannot put forth its best efforts. In a scrawny, impoverished soil and exhausted atmosphere, lacking the constituents of nurture, the plant will become dwarfed and unproductive. Whereas on good ground and in good air, which have the succulent properties to nourish it, the best results may be expected. The soil and the air, therefore, from which are derived the constituents of plant life, are indispensably necessary. But they are not the primal principles upon which that life depends for its being. The basis, the foundation, the origin of the life is the seed which germinates in the soil and evolves itself into the plant. A dead seed will not germinate. A contaminated seed may, but the plant it produces will not be a healthy one, and it will only be after a long series of transplantings with patience and care that, at length, a really sound plant will be obtained. The same principle holds good in regard to the human plant. It is hard to offset an evil ancestry. The contamination goes on from generation to generation. Just as in the case of the notorious Juke family, which cost New York State hundreds of thousands of dollars in consequence of criminality and idiocy. It requires almost a miracle to divert an individual sprung from a corrupt stem into a healthy, moral course of living. There must be some powerful force brought to bear to make him break the ligatures which bind him to ancestral nature 
and enable him to come forth on a plane where he will be susceptible to the influence of what is good and noble. Such can be done and has been accomplished. Burbank is accomplishing such miracles in the vegetable kingdom. In fact, he is recreating species, as it were, and developing them to a full fruition. Of course, as in the case of the conversion of a sinner from his evil instincts, much opposition is met, and the progress at first is slow. But finally, the plant becomes fixed in its new ways and starts forward on its new course in life. It requires patience to await the development. Burbank is a man of infinite patience. He has been five, ten, fifteen, twenty years in producing a desired blossom. But he considers himself well rewarded when his object has been obtained. Thousands of experiments are going on at the same time. But in each case, years are required to achieve results. So slow is the work of selection, the rejecting of the seemingly worthless, and the eternal choosing of the best specimens to continue the experiments. When two plants are united to produce a third, no human intelligence can predict just what will be the result of the union. There may be no result at all. Hence it is that Burbank does not depend on one experiment at a time. If he did, the labors of a lifetime would have little to show for their work. In breeding lilies, he has used as high as 500,000 plants in a single test. Such an immense quantity gave him a great variety of selection. He culled and rejected, and culled and rejected, until he made his final selection for the last test. Sometimes he is very much disappointed in his anticipations. For instance, he marks out a certain life for a flower and breeds and selects to that end. For a time, all may go according to his plans, but suddenly some new trait develops which knocks those plans all out of gear. The new flower may have a longer stem and narrower leaves than either parent, while a shorter stem and broader leaves are the desideratum. The experimenter is disappointed, but not disheartened. He casts the flower aside and makes another selection from the same species, and again goes ahead until his object is attained. It may be asked how two plants are united to procure a third. The act is based on the procreative law of nature. 
plant breeding is simply accomplished by sifting the pollen of one plant upon the stigma of another. This act, pollination, resulting in fertilization. Nature in her own mysterious ways, bringing forth the new plant. In order to get an idea of the Burbank method, let us consider some of his most famous experiments. For instance, that in which by uniting the potato with the tomato, he has produced a new variety, which has been very aptly named the pomato. Mr. Burbank, from the beginning of his wonderful career, has experimented much with the potato. It was this vegetable which first brought the plant wizard into worldwide prominence. The Burbank potato is known in all lands where the tuber forms an article of food. It has been introduced into Ireland and promises to be the salvation of that distressed island of which the potato constitutes the staple diet. The Burbank potato is the hardiest of all varieties, and in this respect is well suited for the colder climates of the temperate zone. Apart from this potato which bears his name, Mr. Burbank has produced many other varieties. He has blended wild varieties with tame ones, getting very satisfactory results. Mr. Burbank believes that a little wild blood, so to speak, is often necessary to give tone and vigor to the tame element, which has been long running in the same channels. Probably it was Emerson, his favorite author, who gave him the cue for this idea. Emerson pointed out that the city is recruited from the country. The city would have died out, rotted, and exploded long ago, wrote the New England sage, but that it was reinforced from the fields. It is only country that came to town day before yesterday that is city and court today. In Burbank's greenhouses are mated all kinds of wild and tame varieties of potatoes, producing crosses and combinations truly wonderful as regards shape, size, and color. One of the most palatable potatoes he has produced is a magenta color approaching crimson, so distributed throughout that when the tuber is cut, no matter from what angle, it presents concentric geometric figures, some having a resemblance to human and animal faces. Before entering on any experiment to produce a new creation, Burbank always takes into consideration the practical end of the experiment, that is, what the value of the result will be as a practical factor in commerce, how much it will benefit the race. He does not experiment for a pastime 
or a novelty, but for a purpose. His object in regard to the potato is to make it a richer, better vegetable for a food supply, and also to make it more important for other purposes in the commerce of the nations. The average potato consists of 75% water and 25% dry matter, almost all of which is starch. Now starch is a very important article from a manufacturing standpoint, but only one-fourth of the potato is available for manufacturing. The other three-fourths, being water, is practically waste matter. Now, if the water could be driven out to a great extent, and starchy matter increased, it is easy to understand that the potato would be much increased in value as an article of manufacture. Burbank has not overlooked this fact in his potato experiments. He has demonstrated that it is as easy to breed potatoes for a larger amount of starch, and he has really developed tubers which contain at least 25% more starch than the normal varieties. In other words, he has produced potatoes which yield 50% of starch instead of 25%. The United States uses about $12 million worth of starch every year, chiefly obtained from Indian corn and potatoes. When the potato is made to yield double the amount of starch, as Burbank has proved it can yield, and more, it will be understood what a large part it can be made to play in this important manufacture. Also, for the production of alcohol, the potato is gaining a prominent place. The potato starch is converted into maltose by the diastase of malt, the maltose being easily acted upon by ferment for the actual production of the alcohol. Therefore, an increase in the starch of the potato for this purpose alone is much to be desired. Of course, the chief prominence of the potato will still consist in its adaptability as an article of food. Burbank does not overlook this. He has produced, and is producing, potatoes with better flavor, of larger and uniform size, and which give a much greater yield to the area. Palatability, in the end, decides the permanence of a food, and the Burbank productions possess this quality in a high degree. Burbank labored long and studied every characteristic of the potato before attempting any experiments with the tomato. Though closely related by family ties, the potato and the tomato seemed to have no affinity for each other whatever. In many other instances, it has also been found that two varieties 
which from a certain relation might naturally be expected to amalgamate easily have been repellent to each other and refused to unite in his first experiment in trying to cross the potato and tomato burbank produced tomatoes from the seeds of plants pollinated from potato pollen only he next produced what he called aerial potatoes of very peculiar twisted shapes from a potato vine grafted on a ponderosa or large tomato plant then reversing this operation he grafted the same kind of tomato plant upon the same kind of potato plant and produced underground a strange-looking potato with marked tomato characteristics he saw he was on the right road to the production of a new variety of vegetable but before experimenting further along this line he crossed two distinct species of tomatoes and obtained a most ornamental plant different from the parent stems about twelve inches high and fifteen inches across with large unusual leaves and producing clusters of uniform globular fruit the whole giving a most pleasing and unique appearance the fruit were more palatable than the ordinary tomatoes had better nutritive qualities and were more suitable for preserving and canning very pleased with this result he went back to his experiments with the potato tomato and succeeded in producing the most wonderful and unique fruit in the world one which by a happy combination of the two names he has aptly called the pomato it may be considered as the evolution of a potato seed ball it first appears as a tiny green ball on the potato top and as the season progresses it gradually enlarges and finally develops into a fruit about the size and shape of the ordinary tomato the flesh is white and the marrow which contains but a few tiny white seeds is exceedingly pleasant to the taste possessing a combination of several different fruit flavors though it cannot be identified with any one it may be eaten either raw or cooked after the manner of the common tomato in either case it is most palatable but especially so when cooked it is exceptionally well adapted to preserving purposes the production of such a fruit from a vegetable is one of the crowning triumphs of the california wizard probably it is the most novel of all the wonderful crosses and combinations he has given to the world it would be impossible here to go into detail in regard to some of the other wonders accomplished in the plant world by this modern magician there is only space to merely mention a few more of his successful achievements.
he has given the improved thornless and spiculous cactus food for man and beast converting it into a beautifier and reclaimer of desert wastes the plum cot which is an amalgamation of the plum and the apricot with a flavor superior to both many kinds of plums some without pits others having the taste of bartlett pears and still others giving out a fragrance as sweet as the rose several varieties of walnuts one with a shell as thin as paper and which was so easily broken by the birds that burbank had to reverse his experiment somewhat in order to get a thicker shell another walnut has no tannin in the meat which is the cause of the disagreeable flavor of the ordinary fruit the world-famed shasta daisy which is a combination of the japanese daisy the english daisy and the common field daisy and which has a blossom seven inches in diameter a dahlia deprived of its unpleasant odor and the scent of the magnolia blossom substituted a gladiolus which blooms around the entire stem like a hyacinth instead of the old way on one side only many kinds of lilies with chalices and petals different from the ordinary and exhaling perfumes as varied as those of oriental gardens a poppy of such dimension that it is from ten to twelve inches across its brilliant bloom an amaryllis bred up from a couple of inches to over a foot in diameter several kinds of fruit trees which withstand frost in bud and in flower a chestnut tree which bears nuts in eighteen months from the time of seed planting a white blackberry paradoxical as it may appear a rare and beautiful fruit and as palatable as it is beautiful the primus berry a union of the raspberry and the blackberry another wonderful and delicious berry produced from the california dewberry and the cuthbert raspberry pie plants four feet in diameter bearing every day in the year prunes three four and five times as large as the ordinary and enriched in flavor blackberries without their prickly thorns and hundreds of other combinations and crosses of fruits and flowers too numerous to mention he has improved plums pears apples apricots quinces peaches cherries grapes in short all kinds of fruit which grow in our latitude and many even that have been introduced he has developed hundreds of varieties of flowers improving them in color 
hardiness, and yield. Thus, he has not only added to the food and manufacturing products of the world, but he has enriched the aesthetic side in his beautiful flower creations. End of chapter 7 Recording by Louise J. Bell Sebastopol, California